Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm here with Professor Heather Douglas. Professor Douglas is a philosopher, now based at Michigan State University, formerly at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And her work focuses on the interplay between science and science advice, policymaking, and especially issues of democracy, objectivity, and values. She's the author of the influential book, Science, Policy, and the Value-Free Ideal, and plan is to talk about all three of those elements in today's conversation. So Heather, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Toby. It's great to be here. So let's talk philosophy. What is the value-free ideal? So it was this ideal that uh, really solidified philosophically in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, as philosophers were grappling with the place of science in the post-World War II era. Um, there are echoes of it, you know, prior to that period, but it was really in that period that it became a clear philosophical thesis. And it's the idea that social and ethical values in particular should not be influencing science, particularly in the internal stages of science when scientific inference about evidence occurs, that that should be sort of a value-free, pure sphere of just epistemic concerns. And this uh, norm fit really well with other views at the time around sort of basic versus applied science. Basic was pure, therefore value-free, um, and the role of science advice and policymaking, which was science advice, should also be value-free and independent from society generally and sort of come from outside society into these political discussions. Okay. Um, naively speaking, that sounds kind of right to me, or at least it sounds like a good thing to aim for. I mean, it, if we could somehow have value-free science, that would be really great. The problem is that we can't, and we can't for two very particular reasons. The first is that even if you say the inside of you know, scientific inference is value-free, there are still decisions about what you're trying to know, what kinds of questions you think are significant to ask and pursue. Uh, so values shape really deeply the kinds of issues that scientists try to address or the kinds of frameworks that scientists try to deploy in science. And then to, so you can say, okay, 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 that was context of discovery. Let's worry about the context of justification where you have the evidence gathered and you're going to move to inference. The problem is that um, scientific inference never has all the evidence. It's not like the evidence is ever complete. We don't have certainty, Cartesian certainty that you have about like you exist because you're thinking, I think therefore I am, you know, therefore you exist. Um, we don't have that kind of certainty in empirical science. So the science is, the evidence is always incomplete. And so there's always a gap between the claim you want to make and the evidence you have for it. The question is whether or not that evidential gap is acceptable. Is the uncertainty acceptable? Is the risk of error acceptable? And epistemic concerns don't really help us sort that out. You really need social and ethical values to help judge whether or not remaining uncertainties are good, whether or not you really want to worry more about false positives or false negatives, for example, is one way to think about this, or whether you think the model you're working with is really getting at the phenomena you are concerned with, even though you know it's idealized in some really important ways. So because social and ethical values are really essential for getting us across that bridge, um, science can't be value-free, even in the ideal. We're going to need to think about values at that moment. 
in the internal practice of scientific reasoning. And this means the value-free ideal is really kind of a bad ideal. It doesn't give us the guidance we need at the crucial point of inference, much less ignoring the earlier, you know, how are you deciding what to pursue to begin with kinds of questions. Okay. Okay. So, so let me just walk back a few steps and make sure I follow what you're saying. So you're talking about the moment in the classical scientific method where you've done an experiment and you have some evidence that seems to confirm your hypothesis. And you're thinking, okay, is this enough evidence to prove what I want to prove? And then of course, in principle, the answer is always no, because you can never have all the evidence, right? I mean, there might be a disruptive piece of evidence just around the corner. And also there might have been mistakes, I guess, in how you gather it or confounding factors you didn't notice or whatever. And you're saying the only way we can get over those kinds of limitations is to apply values, ethical values. Is that right? Yeah, because we're human. (laughs) And because we're sort of limited epistemic actors. So some people have argued, well, the reason we can't uh, get rid of values in science is because we're human and we inevitably just import them in because we can't help but, say, have confirmation bias or some other thing like that. And it's like, well, even if we were sort of like really purely objective, you know, like we could get rid of all of our sort of human emotional predilections we would still have this problem. We'd still be like, okay, well, is the evidence enough? Yeah. So so when you say we can't do science without values, it's not a problem that we just can't manage to factor out the values that we should be factoring out. It's more that we actually need those values to compensate for our like intrinsic limitations. Exactly. Exactly. So any any limited, I mean, even machines have to do this, right? They, they have this inductive gap too. Yeah. So you you also so we we started talking about values generally, but you mentioned a particular kind of value, ethical values, or I think you said social and ethical values. Because I mean, when you first hear this idea of the value-free ideal, I mean, surely it would be hard to find anyone in science who really thinks that science has no values. We all know science has values, but I'm thinking of things that are kind of internal to science. You know, rules about how we do it properly, like um, independence, skepticism. I don't know, humility, reproducibility. And, and so. simplicity and scope. Right, and Explanatory power. I mean, those are the classic sort of, and also like, you know, not fudging your data and treating your colleagues well, sort of the internal responsible cognitive research sort of values, right? That, yeah, right. right okay, right. so I guess we even got kind of two subcategories of these internal values. So you've got your like scientific rules, epistemic values, things like simplicity and completeness and independence and so on. And on the other hand, you've also got the... Just basically rules that say don't don't be a jerk, like be nice to others yeah. and don't plagiarize. And stuff, yeah, right. And these are the values of science that we all agree are there. But if I understand you right, you're not just talking about these. You're talking about values that we import from society, from outside science, that we also need to do science. Yeah, and the reason is is not just because you know being a good scientist still doesn't tell you when the evidence is sufficient. <laughs> Because the question of evidential sufficiency has to involve a consideration of broader impact. This sort of centers on questions of responsibility. Is or Do scientists pursue science somehow outside of society and so they don't have to worry about the impact of their work on society? And then society just worries about the impact? No, that's not how it works. Scientists are in society. They're part of society. And, you know, if you're doing science advice, you, you want that. You want your scientific work to be part of the public discourse. You want the information to be out there. So then you have to think about 
the impact of your work on the broader society. And then you have to worry about the impact of error on the broader society. Like, you know, the errors are going to be there. You know that there's a chance because the evidence isn't complete. So when is it good enough? Okay. But haven't some areas of science developed their own kind of internal uh, objective rules for this too? Like, you know, values which are supposed to tell you how likely it is that your evidence has misled you and therefore whether you can accept it or not. When people talk about, you know, conventions for statistical significance as a way sort of around this, but first of all, you know, different fields have different conventions and there are lots of other methodological choices that have to do with sort of focusing on one source of error versus another, um, what kinds of evidential characterizations the classic case for me is the rat liver slide. If you're looking at a rat liver slide and it's sort of ambiguous about whether or not it has cancer in it, well, which way do you go? You know, you got to mark down it's malignant, benign, or not cancerous at all. You have to say something about it to sort of make the data. Um, well, okay, what are you worried about? Are you worried about overregulation or underregulation? You know, that's going to, and that actually has, in, in fact, influenced. Um, how scientists have looked at these. I mean, now they've, they've improved the methodology so you could actually culture the cells a little bit and get a more definitive test. But, you know, <laughs> back in the 1980s, they didn't have that. So it was a thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, presumably it continues to be a thing in all kinds of other areas. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder whether there's a way to kind of weaken the force of this by by offloading it. So we say, okay, we understand that values are needed to do the interpretation, to draw conclusions and so on, for science to make sense. But why can't the science community, or I guess I mean the science advice community, just offload most of that to the political side? So the model would be, okay, we as scientists, we do the work, we gather the data, we can tell you what the data means, like internal to our own discipline, understanding there is a bit of discipline internal value judgment there. But all the bigger stuff about when to stop researching, whether you want to take action based on the results, whether the risk is tolerable, whether the uncertainty is tolerable, all that stuff. Like we will answer your questions about the data, but you, the politicians, take responsibility for making those kinds of big value judgments. You know, we generate the data as neutrally as we can and you, representing society, you apply the values to it. Why doesn't that work? So um, imagine the expertise that the politicians would have to have to unpack the implications of the scientific work. They would have to understand the judgments going into data characterization, the choice of methodologies, the interpretation of the evidence, the evidential strength. Wow, that's a lot. You'd have to ask them to be maybe not practicing scientists. They don't have to actually know how to do the work, but they would have to understand the sort of level of details to actually engage with it. They'd have to have what um, Collins and Evans have called interactive expertise. They'd have to be able to understand every point of judgment. And uh, that's a lot to ask of a politician who probably has to do this across multiple areas of uh, policymaking, right? Not just for climate change, but also for chemicals in the environment, plus healthcare policy, so on and so on, biodiversity, agriculture. Oh my gosh, it would be a lot to ask of them. What we need from scientists is to simultaneously make judgments that they think are good judgments, but acknowledge uh, and understand the role that social and ethical values have played in those judgments. 
and the, the limitations or strengths that are embedded in the research because of those judgments. So what you want from the scientists is both sort of, I mean, the politician's going to want the upshot. Well, is the chemical dangerous or not? Well, is this energy policy going to work or not? And for the scientists to say, well, according to my model, um, which, by the way, is hedged by X, Y, and Z and comes from the state. No, they're going to say what the, what the politician is going to want to say is yes or no based on these primary considerations. So then you have a combination of the upshot from the epistemic constraints and the evidential constraints, but also an indication of what the values were that were really important in framing and in carrying out the work. And then the politician can take that on board and be like, oh, I see what to do with this now. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. You say it's a big ask for politicians if we put the burden on them, but it sounds like it's also a big ask for scientists. Because to do that kind of job involves a very detailed, subtle understanding of the philosophical, conceptual stuff that underpins your data and your experimentation. Well, yeah, but I mean, who's better to understand the underpinnings of their data and experimentation than the scientists doing it, right? I mean, I guess you could hire an embedded philosopher of science to help you unpack all that. <laughs> but, but wow, that's also, you know, I don't think there are enough of uh, philosophers of science around there to help with that. Um, there are some, you know, research. Uh, so Eric Fisher's developed this social technical integration research where he has a protocol for embedding social scientists and humanities people in labs to help unpack these kinds of judgments. But a lot of it is, you know, scientists know this is going on. So when I've been at, at conferences with scientists talking about their work, like in, initially when I was a, a graduate student and then a young professor over 20 years ago, before I had sort of arguments really critiquing the value-free ideal on the table that were clear, a lot of them were like, well, we know, you know, we're making these value judgments, but we also know we're, we're not supposed to talk about them. <laughs> And I was like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, and, and, and further, like, we can't do the work without them. Okay, well, then we need to really think about the ideal and reframe it, maybe, maybe, you know, and that's, that's what ended up being the book through saying this is a bad ideal. It's just not an appropriate ideal for scientists. And part of that is to help scientists feel free to talk about the values that shape and frame their work without feeling like they've done something wrong normatively that they've somehow stepped outside the bounds of proper scientific practice. That is scientific, proper scientific practice. And so I'm hoping that as scientists get used to a different framework, they become better at talking about the kind of values that shape their work. Ah, I hadn't seen it that way. So in a way, it's kind of uh, therapeutic work <laughs> to help scientists recognize and become comfortable with the things that we all know are in there and make it okay to talk about them and yes, document exactly. them and, and work exactly. with them. Therapy for scientists. Philosophical therapy. I guess it's philosophical therapy for scientists. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Your vocation has suddenly become clear. Oh, dear. So then let's talk specifically about science advice. Do we have to throw away the idea of the independent science advisor, who's at least independent of the person asking the question? I think so. Um, I think independence is, again, it's an ideal that harkens back to the era when the value for ideal just seemed like the obvious way to think about all these things. And I think it's really unhelpful. I think it's unhelpful both from the perspective of science advisors. Um, they very often, so chief science advisors that I've heard talk about this, have um, talked about how important it is to connect with their advisees 
to have some shared sensibilities, to have some shared sense of values. So famously, the reason Vannevar Bush was such a great advisor for Roosevelt, even though Bush was a Republican and Roosevelt was a Democrat in World War II, is that they were both Yankees. Um, so they're both from, you know, the northeast part of the U.S. And so that gave them a shared sort of sensibility and cultural sense of values that they could talk to and trust each other. Now, there is something really important in the ideal of independence that we need to sort of salvage, right? Like, I don't want to just say, oh, no, you can just be totally dependent and totally, you know, just tell your advisee whatever they want to hear. No, no, this is like obviously the wrong ideal. And you don't want the state power actually dictating to advisors what they should be saying or what the results should be. That would, again, be really catastrophic. The case of Lysenko shows that. Nixon and his science advisors show that. I mean, there are all these cases where um, politicians have attempted to get their advisors to say what they want politically. Um, and it's really important that advisors push back against that. So um, what should the right ideal be? And uh, in my most recent work in thinking about this, I've argued that a different ideal for science advisors is acknowledging three different lines of obligation. So one is to the scientific community. Obviously, a lot of science advisory work is collating information coming out of the scientific community, gathering information from multiple experts across the scientific community into a coherent advisory picture, either on an advisory committee or you know the work of a chief science advisor to very often to talk to lots of different people um, through advisory mechanisms. And, you know, you need to have a sense of responsibility and accountability to that scientific community. Like you cannot just play fast and loose with the information that's out there. It has to be accurate to the available information and you have to be responsive to criticisms that come out of the scientific community about what you've done with the information. And, you know, it's, it's a two-way thing. The community also has to be holding the scientific advisor accountable to accuracy in that sense. And okay, so there's that line. That's one line of obligation. There are two more. There's one other line to the advisee, right? And that involves both, you know, giving them the information as best you can in, in clear forms that are usable, not like hedged to the ninth in a way that there are so many if clauses before it that the advisee has no idea what to do with the information that clarifies the values that have shaped the discussion, including the framing and the evidential sufficiency judgments. And then if you can actually know what the advisees values and then use them to help ensure that the framing actually maps on to what the advisee is concerned about. So if the advisee, for example, is particularly concerned about distributive justice issues, make sure your analysis also concerns distributive justice issues, right? There's sort of a way in which you might, uh, for the impact of, say, some science policy decision, there's a way in which you might sort of help, you know, coordinate. And you still need to be accurate to the scientific information, but there might be considerations that are important there. And then suppose the advisee then goes to the public and says, oh, my advisor said X, when in fact the advisor said Y, you know, said something totally different or not X. Then there's a really important obligation to the public, right? The advisor has to go public and say, no, that's not what I said. I said something different. This is what I said. Um, they have to call out their advisee for saying something dishonest about the nature of the advice 
or misinterpreting the advice. In democratic systems, uh, you know, the, the public has to know uh, what advice, ideally, as much as possible, what advice their politicians are getting and how they're responding to that advice. So in general, you want science advice to be made public. There are lots of cases where it can't be, you know, national security issues. Um, sometimes you need confidential advice between an advisor and advisee to sort of make the relationship work. Advisory committees should always have public reports, but there are times when the advisee distorts the advice for political gain, and then they have to be called out by the advisor, even if it means losing their job. Okay, this is interesting. So I'm glad if we're throwing out the cherished idea of the independent science advisor, we have something to replace it with. Um, this last part about the obligation to the public, I find that particularly interesting because it's something that various guests have talked about on this podcast. So, you know, science advisors and policymakers and also academics like yourself. Um, and I think they've divided roughly 50-50 on where the primary responsibility lies. There's the camp that says something like what you've just said, that the first duty of the scientist in a democratic system is always to the to the demos, right? To the people or, or to the noble truth or whatever. So you have to go out and communicate to the world what advice you're giving because that's needed for the public to be able to understand the situation and therefore to exercise their own role in judging their elected representatives, right? And then there's the other side of the argument that a science advisor owes their obligation, their first obligation to the advisee, to the policymaker. And then according to this position, it's kind of part of the deal if you choose to accept the duty and the privilege of being inside the room, and giving advice to people in power, then in exchange you uh, renounce your public face. It's like a professional principle with an analogy, I suppose, in something like the civil service code. And it needn't be a dogmatic thing. I mean, I think we've seen plenty of examples, especially during the pandemic, where science advisors freelancing, as it were, in their public engagement, talking about uncertainties and disagreements and political divides and so on. Um, that's caused some consternation among politicians who are trying to maintain a clear single line on, for instance, public health measures. Now, in your model, you want advisors to keep both responsibilities. So where do you draw the line between those two? How does the advisor adjudicate conflicts that come up between duty to advisee and duty to the public or to truth? So, you know, the key point where you have to go public is when the advisor gives a piece of information to the advisee and the advisee says, the advisor gave me a different piece of information, right? Like that's like, no, 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 no. You don't get to say like, oh, um, the advisor says masks are effective. And the advisee says, my advisor says masks are not effective. No, I'm sorry. At that point in time, you got to go public. When you're dealing with um, multiple individual scientists also giving their advice all the time to the public, I could see in a moment of crisis why that would be confusing. Um, and then you sort of want to move to committees that maybe like come together to discuss what advice should be given. And then they make that advice public. So this is kind of collation process. So you don't end up with like a cacophony of voices in the midst of a crisis. I totally get that. But again, I think this idea of a civil service code, like, oh, you know, I owe an oath of loyalty to the government so that, you know, I work for them. No, you work for the scientific community, the public and them all at once, which is why the job is so freaking hard 
right? Like it's, I'm sure you, um, your guests have, you know, said over and over again to you how difficult the job is in navigating this really complicated terrain. And one of the things I like about this alternative ideal is it makes it really clear why it's really hard because you have these lines of obligation and they don't get to be traded off against each other. You kind of have all of them all the time pulling you in different directions. Hard job, really hard job. But this is where you also get a sense of independence, right? You're independent from the advisee because you have obligations to the scientific community and to the public. You're independent from the public because you have obligations to the scientific community and to the advisee. You know, like, because you're sort of strung between them all, um, there's a, a very uncomfortable independence. It's, it's, a, it's a continually under tension situation, which I think captures, you know, what's actually happening. And um, you can see like how failures of science advice is usually a failure of obligation to one of those three groups. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, so in this new model where we acknowledge the values that are imbued in all the science we do, are there any dangers? Because it seems to me that the value-free ideal does or did one important job, right? That it constantly reminded scientists to try and keep values out. Now, you're given lots of persuasive reasons why that's futile. And anyway, it's just not how science works. So, okay, but then what? How do we avoid, for instance, the danger of scientific decisions being skewed by a scientist's personal values or their perception of political values or needs? Or indeed, in the case of science advice, being hijacked by political recipients and, and weaponized. Don't these things become more of a risk if you switch to welcoming rather than resisting the role of values in science and science advice? So part of what I'm hoping, and this is part of what I um, have been trying to argue in my work, is that acknowledging the role of values in science won't make that any worse. We already have that problem. <laughs> we, already, we already have a weaponization of science. We already have partisanship battles and squabbles over, you know, who counts as reliable experts, what counts as a reliable source of information or data, um, crazy sort of conspiracy theories about, you know, what is actually going on with various sorts of things from the earth being flat to chips being in vaccines, right? Or salad dressing, apparently. There are worries about vaccines what? and salad dressing. <laughs> <That's> what, uh, <laughs> Don't, I know, I know. It's so off all, all the rails so many times. And notice that none of the discourse around independence and value freedom help here. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't actually help. So what does help is being upfront, these are the concerns that drove the analysis. This is how we did the analysis. This is how, why we thought the evidence was sufficient in this case. And then values being a source of trust, surprisingly, right? So instead of saying, I'm independent, I have no values were involved here, which frankly, the public is going to smell bullshit right away, <laughs> right? Can I say bullshit on the podcast? You just did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just did. Um, then to acknowledge that, you know, no, actually, what we were worried about here was saving lives or protecting this process or um, really, you know, ensuring that this bad outcome didn't happen. And, you know, we share some of your values that you have expressed about this issue. That actually can be huge sorts of trust. If you think about the way, you know, in which expert individual trust relationships go, like with your doctor. You want your doctor to know what values you have for your health care, like what you consider a key health goal, um, 
it can't just be like endless life. We actually don't want to live forever because that would suck. Um, so like, what are the quality of life issues? You know, if you read Atul Gawande's um, book on being mortal, um, you know, one of the key things that enables him to be a good doctor is he solicits from his patients what their values are, what their concerns are, what they want, you know, and he helps them navigate what they want best, given the empirical conditions of their disease, right? Which are not sort of negotiable. You don't sort of say like, oh, of course you can like go home and do whatever you want when you're dying of, you know, brain cancer. <laughs> no, actually, there are going to be real constraints, but let's see what you, what we can do for you. And so shared values is a key basis of trust in that relationship. Well, the same is going to be true for science advice, the societal scale, that science advisors share some of the concerns of members of the public. Now, this might mean that some science advisors, and this is where it gets tricky, aren't going to be the most trusted by some segments of the public because they don't share similar values. Um, but if you have a sufficiently diverse scientific community, there are going to be some scientists who actually do share values with that community. And so they can become a key source of trusted science and scientific information for that community. And that's actually, again, what seems to be working with both climate change and uh, um, COVID policies, that it's not just sort of the generic, independent, trusted science advice that works, but the person that you know has your interests at heart. That's where the trusted information comes from. And you think that's about shared values and not just uh, identity politics. So it's not just there's a scientist who's like me, so I subscribe to what they're saying. It's more recognizing the value overlap. So I hope it's about shared values. I think identity politics in some ways ends up being a proxy for shared values and a kind of a poor one. I think, you know, that sort of shows the extreme political fracturing that's going on, that instead of having more open discussion about, say, divergent values that exist in pluralist societies, we end up just saying, oh, that person looks like me, therefore I will believe them. Well, that's actually really weak <laughs> as a basis for this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think it's a better form than identity politics. And what about uh, weaponization of science, which is a slightly different thing, where the politician takes a piece of evidence and says, uh, see, I told you so, I win the argument, here we go. <laughs> here we go. Yeah, so um, I think uh, viewing science as a sort of like value-free entity makes that sort of worse because then the science can be weaponized. It's like this like impermeable shield of truth. Um, if you see science as instead uh, shaped by values and um, contingent and always part of critique, then, you know, suddenly that shield is not so impermeable. It, it doesn't serve that weaponization function as well if part of the public discourse of science is that science is contested, that science is properly shaped by values as well as crucially evidence and epistemic considerations. Um, and so there's going to be no like impermeable shield of truth that you can like bash your opponents with or protect all of your ideology with because there's no such thing. Huh. Okay, so that, that's a bit of an epiphany for me. Maybe this should have been obvious to me a long time ago, but from what you just said, of course, the claim that a scientific result, a, uh, 
quote-unquote scientific fact. The claim that it's completely immune to criticism because it was derived in a value-free zone actually makes the scientific enterprise brittle because it gives no space then to resolve or even to understand what's going on when two scientists disagree or when two scientific perspectives clash with each other. I mean, either one of them has got to be bad science or we abandon trust in the whole scientific enterprise as a whole. Whereas when you admit and describe the ways in which values did play a role in deriving that scientific fact, I'm just going to say fact, that then gives you space to contest it without like flipping the whole table and walking away. Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, um, the value-free ideal allows for, for like a, a greater weaponization of science in politics because it gives you that sort of external authority. Yeah, and I guess at the end of the day, in that situation, science becomes the casualty. Because if you really want to oppose someone who's walking down the street with the big shield of science, you can only attack the big shield of science. Whereas if you have a better understanding of what went into the science, you have options to oppose that don't involve saying all science is rubbish and there are vaccines in our cell. Right, <laughs> right. Or like, we can't trust the scientists. Well, no, you know, because the scientists disagree. And so obviously they're like, you know, all bought or they're all, most of them are wrong or they don't know what they're talking about. Those are all inaccurate understandings of expert disagreement, right? Expert disagreement occurs because experts look at different aspects of phenomena because experts um, view sort of evidential sufficiency considerations differently, right? For some experts, like some a smaller amount of evidence will be convincing and other experts will be like, no, I actually, I want stronger evidence before I'm going to be convinced. Okay, so so do people get this already? Is, is a question. So do, so... Do science advisors get this, do you think? And do politicians? And does the public? Like, what work needs to be done to make this happen? A lot. Some scientists get this. Some science advisors get this. They really understand this is what's going on. I'm not so sure about politicians. I think politicians understand when a science advisor is speaking to them, both from a position of, you know, getting the science accurately, but also speaking to their value concerns. And that advice ends up being quite powerful. It's not clear to me that politicians understand that that's what's happening. And that's partly because um, the image of what science is that we teach, like in grade school, is is kind of off base, right? If Because we teach science as like this collection of unassailable facts that will forever be true. And the answer's in the back of the book. And it's all done. It's done. And scientists know, of course, that's not the case. It's why science is exciting. If science were done, scientists would have a really boring job. <laughs> right? They would just be like, well, what does the book say? <laughs> right? Um, science is exciting because it's not all done. Um, so how should we teach science to our burgeoning citizens as an ongoing practice of inquiry where it's not done? where things might be overturned. So people ask me like, oh, you know, big things don't get overturned. And I was like, yeah, when I was in grade school, there was a, like a picture in the beginning of the biology textbook that said, you know, acquired characteristics cannot be inherited. <laughs> Lamarck was wrong. Darwin was right. And then like, I'm an adult. I'm believing this. Epigenetics comes along. Acquired characteristics can be inherited. Now it's not what, you know, Lamarck thought of, like, you get an arm cut off and, and that it gets inherited. No, right? It's, it's much more subtle. It's more complex. But wow, that sort of statement in the biology book is just, like, wrong. 
right? And that was just a foundational fact when I was growing up. So what's exciting is that this kind of thing happens, that things that were thought to be like fixed and, you know, we really can rely on this, surely, if nothing else, gets overturned. Now, not all of it all the time. Most of it sort of stays, the earth is still round mostly, and you know, it's not a perfect sphere. But why aren't we teaching science as a process of genuine inquiry? We, so there is an example from the UK that did this beautifully, the Blackwanton Bee Study, where second graders did an actual empirical inquiry of bee behavior that was published in a scientific journal. They designed the experiment. They wrote up the results. And like the last sentence, something like adorable, like science is cool because you get to find out things no one else has known before. So they did genuine scientific inquiry in second grade, right? So why don't we have curricula devoted to scientific inquiry and practice. Now, it means you're not going to test kids on facts in the same sort of way, but you can still learn a lot of like chemistry by doing stream chemistry sampling for your local stream or biological surveys. You can learn a lot about like different kinds of uh, parts of the tree of life, as it were, identification. You, You know, you might not master the periodic table in grade 10, (laughs) But that's okay, because I think most adults don't really need to master the periodic table. We have Google anyway. (laughs) We have Google anyway. (laughs) The the better we get at retrieving knowledge from a database on demand, the less we have to rely on memorizing that knowledge as kids. And the more we can focus on science as a method of inquiry rather than science as a body of facts. Yeah. I mean, and imagine if we um, kids in, in grade school learned about issues of methodology. So that when scientists disagree in public and they were disagreeing about methodology, they'd be like, oh, I remember that. There is this problem of confounders. I remember this problem of controls or had like a good statistics class instead of like trigonometry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, what's actually useful for citizens understanding science? We don't teach science and mathematics for that. We teach science and mathematics for people to become scientists and physicists, actually, like calculus isn't even that important in most sciences. I, I, I did physics in undergrad, so calculus was really important for me. But, you know, like every all the philosophy of science I did in my PhD onwards, I needed statistics, not calculus. Yeah. But imagine if in grade school, kids had like a basic understanding of how to do research then you could like combine things in the sort of training of scientists a little bit differently. And then, and then you know, obviously we can't wait for all, like the whole reform of the education system as a whole reform to like percolate up through generations, obviously not. So then we need to sort of shift the norms around science reporting. And I think this is actually already happening. So science journalism in my lifetime has gone from like, here's a result. Yay! <laughs> um, to to okay. Here's a result. Here's what the scientists who produce the result think about the result. Here's what some other scientists think about the result, and why they're not so sure the methodology was strong enough. And here's like further implications and research that needs to be done. Right. So like really sort of embedding the result in the context of inquiry, so the public can see all that. That's become a much bigger prevalent norm of science reporting. And I think that's hugely important for the public understanding of science to see it as this ongoing process. 
right? That isn't finished. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you might seem like, why should we rely on science with all this? Like you're saying it's an ongoing process of inquiry. It's not done yet. But here's the counterintuitive way of thinking about this. It's science this way. Instead of thinking that um, science is less reliable because it's an ongoing practice of inquiry with, you know, there's always a chance that you're wrong. There's always this sort of nascent layer of uncertainty. Um, so you're always trying to like find new evidence, new theories, new models. That's actually why science is so reliable because it's always under criticism, examination, further investigation. It's always being worked over again by the scientists. So that's why it's actually reliable, not because it's like a fixed foundation of facts with answers in the back of the book, right? It's because of its empirical inquiry nature and the nature of the scientific community to be continually supported in critiquing its own work and pushing boundaries further. You've got to feel sorry though for the policymaker who doesn't work in that world. Yes. <laughs> Just tell me what the answer is, right? And the answer comes back, we don't know. Oh, what do you mean? You know, the question seems simple. Uh, what is the correct social distance to safely reduce the risk of COVID infection? The scientist comes back and says, well, firstly, we haven't got all the information yet. And secondly, let's talk about the values embedded in that statement. What right. do you mean correct? What is safe? Uh, how far are you aiming to reduce the risk? You can already see the politician's head banging against the wall. Okay, well, um, are we talking indoors or outdoors? Really important thing for the expert to raise for the policymaker because they're different. Outdoors where you have like lots of air circulation, it's a different thing. And also, you know, what kinds of risk levels? Are we talking Delta variant? Are we talking pre-Delta variant, right? Are we talking vaccinated or unvaccinated populations? And to sort of raise these things and then say to the um, politician, okay, well, look, like the vast majority of infections, if you're outside and you're not within, I don't know what it is now, outside, um, Six feet still? Three feet? It's a meter and a half over here. I don't know. Yeah, about that. So, yeah, a meter and a half. Okay. You know, you're going to be fine. And an advisor needs to have that conversation with their advisees um, to show what the complexity is. Now, they don't have to bring... This is the art of science advice, as far as I can tell. If you're an advisor, you know all the complexity behind it. You know the, the air modeling, the viral particle modeling... Um, the epidemiological studies, you know, we looked at this case and that case and breakthrough infections and the changing data on the different variants. You have all this complexity back there. You don't need to share all that complexity. And in fact, it would be a catastrophe, right? It would be, you don't need to make the advisee the expert, <laughs> but you need to show like, oh, there are these crucial moments of judgment. There are these crucial decision points. Here are the things that matter. Well, so I'm always loath to bring these conversations to an end, especially one that's been as as virtuosic a, a tour of so many fascinating issues as this one. And I guess it's not obvious, I, I, one that I thoroughly enjoyed as well and learned a lot from. Um, but nonetheless, we do have to pull the plug sometime. And I guess that time is now. So uh, a heartfelt thank you to you, Professor Heather Douglas, for sharing your time and expertise. And let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. 
Sopea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 program for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sopea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko, so I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>